Hey, it's Brian. And before we get started, just a quick note that this episode and the other five in this special series discuss Santa Claus, but not in a way that younger listeners could appreciate. If there are little ones with an earshot, save this for later. Thanks. What grade are you in in school? Um, I'm going into third grade. I'll bet that means that you're really good at penmanship. Do you do some writing? Yeah. Yeah, what do you like to write? Um, I like to write about stuff that, um, like, about my life and stuff. I'm talking to my new friend Katie in North Carolina. She's eight years old, which means that for... How long have you been doing that? A couple of years. A couple of years. She's been putting those penmanship skills to especially good use sometime in early December. I do it at the table. And I use colored pencils. I say my Christmas wishes and, um, write the like ending Like so many other kids who celebrate Christmas, she'll be putting pencil or colored pencil to paper to say hello to Santa Claus and let him know what's on this year's Christmas wish list. Her mom April did it before her. The Toys R Us toy book would come out and then we would kind of go through and, and pick out what we wanted in the toy book and then kind of include that in the letter. I, I would ask him like how he was, how his summer was. And her mom did it before her and so on stretching back through the generations. But the actual number of generations we're talking about here is surprisingly few, because writing letters to Santa Claus, just like so many of the traditions that make up Christmas, is a lot newer than you might imagine. This is Brian Earle from Christmas Past, and normally in each episode, I tell you the fascinating story behind one of your favorite Christmas traditions. And there's plenty of that in store for this season, But in this special six-part miniseries, we're taking a trip back to New York City in the first decades of the 20th century for a piece of Christmas history you've probably never heard before. And it's a doozy. It's part caper comedy, part crime story, part Christmas miracle, and somewhat unbelievably, entirely true. Set against the birth of modern New York City, the Great War, and the Roaring Twenties, It's a story about Santa Claus, and charity, and Christmas spirit. But it's also about so much more. It's about the influence of the media, bitter rivalries, celebrity culture, and personal reinvention, and the lengths that some people will go to to achieve it. It's a story populated by movie stars, government agents, bullfighters, a playboy mayor, an art thief, U.S. presidents, and gun-toting Boy Scouts. This is the story of the Santa Claus Association, a group that helped get children's letters to Santa answered when no one else could, and the charitable con artist behind it all. We'll be hearing a lot from this guy. Hi, I'm Alex Palmer. He's the New York Times bestselling author of The Santa Claus Man, on which this story is based. And for the next six episodes, he and I and some other special guests along the way will be taking you through the strange and rollicking ride that began when kids just like Katie decided to pen their missives to the man in the red suit. You can write our gifts we want on it. And um, like, uh, and last year I set a snow cone machine and, um, my, and Santa got me a karaoke machine. What began humbly in the back office of a restaurant quickly rose to the top of the world's tallest building and had chapters around the U.S. and Canada. And the Santa Claus Association could have gotten even bigger 
and it could maybe have even survived to this very day if it hadn't been for the man behind it and his uncanny ability to land himself in hot water. This is My Dear Santa, a true crime Christmas caper, a special six-part series from Christmas Past. Chapter 1. The Tardy Saint Christmas, as we know it and love it today in America, as a major and ubiquitous cultural celebration, is only the latest of many iterations. For a long time, there was no one way to celebrate it, if you celebrated it at all. The Puritans of Massachusetts Bay Colony actually banned it, and you could get a hefty fine if you were even caught baking a mince pie. Other communities largely ignored it or marked it as a small religious observance or a minor celebration in which case things would stick to the local traditions. It wasn't even a federal holiday until 1870. But right around then, it was all starting to change. And importantly, it was all starting to coalesce into a commonly held vision of what Christmas is. We were still feeling things out, mixing and matching various traditions and inventing the things that would go on to become traditions. Christmas trees, for example, they wouldn't become widespread in American homes until around the 1870s. The modern image of Santa Claus was still coming into its own around then, based largely on illustrations that appeared in magazines and books. And things that are now Christmas mainstays, like a visit from St. Nicholas and a Christmas carol, were still only a few decades old by that point. We were also taking a cue from the Victorians. They had recently rebranded Christmas, so to speak, as a holiday centered around families celebrating in the home. Previously, in many places in Britain, Christmas had become something that communities celebrated out in the streets, like a rowdy and raucous carnival. So this period of transition from the 19th century to the 20th was one of rapid change and innovation and synthesis for American Christmas. And nowhere was this more visible than in New York City. Here's Alex Palmer. In 1912, New York City had its first public Christmas tree where the public would, would gather around and actually celebrate in the town square. Largely, those kind of celebrations, if they did happen, would have been in churches, and there still were plenty of those going on. But this is the first year that they had an actual Christmas tree. It was in Madison Square Park, uh, and the, everybody was invited to come, both uh, you know, of, of all social stations, and that was a big part of the appeal of this event that all New Yorkers could come and, and enjoy this. So even if you're a poor family that maybe couldn't even afford your own Christmas tree, you could come down to the park and experience Christmas. So this was really the year that Christmas went public. And Christmas going public meant a lot more than just having a festive backdrop to the city, though it did mean that. Here's Greg Young. He's one of the hosts of The Bowery Boys, a podcast about the history of New York City. In particular, in New York, you have tens of thousands of people who are Jewish. You have tens of thousands of people who are newly arrived immigrants. Some don't even celebrate Christmas at all. You were in a city where there were just tens of thousands of people who never would have once thought about celebrating Christmas. But as you mentioned, Christmas is by this time beginning to promote family values. It's beginning to promote family units and warmth and companionship and togetherness. And so... Having these in public spaces, having a Christmas tree out in a park that anyone could just go look at, many people didn't have the luxury of owning a Christmas tree or didn't have any idea what Santa Claus looked like. These were really, these types of things were really important in promoting Christmas 
as a kind of a holiday of unity. Now, the Victorians had also rebranded Christmas by placing emphasis on industrialism and commerce and a celebration of the middle-class lifestyle. The notion of Christmas as a major gift-giving holiday is largely thanks to them. And there was plenty of that going on in New York City, too, especially with the help of one New Yorker by the name of Frank Winfield Woolworth. Woolworth really came up to be, you know, one of the most powerful businessmen by the by 1900s, um, really innovating this sort of form of new shopping. But what he brought, he, he sort of innovated the five and dime store idea, which came up from more rural and sort of smaller communities, which was the idea of a shop that was sort of like less pretentious in nature. You know, it didn't, it wasn't like a department store. It wasn't like these grand, beautiful department stores of Ladies Mile or, or that major cities had. It came more from the general store. It had set pricing, like you wouldn't have to negotiate. You could actually pick up the items yourself and go up to the counter, whereas, you know, in the 19th century, usually had like a store owner do it. So he didn't invent the five and dime, but he perfected the five and dime and franchised it. And it was another major retailer in New York City, Macy's Department Store, that not only added to the spectacle of the season, but also changed our ideas about the length of the season and who it's for. Some people put up their tree and their Christmas decorations like two or three days before Christmas. But what the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade did, it was create kind of a, a window. You can actually celebrate that now for a month. Before the Macy's Parade, there would have been no reason, and you would have probably been looked at very strangely if you Christmas decorations in November. It was just that, like, why would you do that? Christmas is like five weeks away. Macy's was on the forefront of developing Christmas as a major capitalistic event. They wanted to get the shopping season started sooner. Uh, you know, on the on the other hand, it also helped make Christmas something that everyone could enjoy, if if you were a Christian or not. Now, why was it possible for all of these changes to be happening so quickly, and why at this time in history? One of the big reasons is that this was also the time that the mass media was truly beginning to flourish. Here's Alex Palmer again. As uh, photographs or illustrations would be shared of how the royals were celebrating Christmas or what the wealthy were doing to celebrate the holiday, that became more on the public mind. People became aware of how Christmas was being celebrated in, uh, you know, in other homes. All of this created a sense of envy and a desire to keep up with the Joneses which the papers and retailers sought to satisfy through commerce. More advertisements, more newspapers were sharing these really you know, attractive-looking toys that you could get for your kids. And it, it, it became a much more, uh, uh, this opportunity for conspicuous consumption, where, yes, you'd celebrate it in the home, but you would show off all that you had in the home, and you'd have parties where you'd invite people to your home to celebrate uh, along with the family. So it became an opportunity to kind of show off the extravagance of, of what you had, and merchants drove that, the media drove that, and that was a particularly American uh, push. With literacy rates on the rise, printing costs on the decline, and a growing middle class, the conditions were right for Christmas to become more commercial 
more standardized and more widespread. It became less expensive to publish uh, papers. There were advertisers and stores eager to advertise and willing to uh, help pay. So it was a really profitable time for, for mass media. and It was costing something like a penny a paper. So it was cheap for, for people to buy. So just huge circulation. There was a real common a common voice uh, that sort of was emerging where people were sharing these experiences and understanding Christmas in this more public, shared way. Now, there was just one more innovation necessary to bring Christmas into the modern age, and more importantly, to get our story rolling. It's something we take for granted today, but at the time, it was truly revolutionary. An overhaul of the postal system. Yeah, it really was the widespread establishment of the postal service where people would be getting visited to their homes by postmen, which was still a novelty until, you know, right after the Civil War, kind of the late late 1800s, that was still, uh, people would have previously had to physically go to the post office and get their mail that way. And and it would have taken a lot longer. The evolution in technology started to make postal delivery a much more convenient thing and a much more accessible thing. So you could write a letter and expect it could you know, be picked up at your home and you'd be received something back. It became this very personal connection. And some, some of the early descriptions of this new postal service offerings as, as it proliferated and became more accessible to even further rural parts of the country, they used the term, you know, uh, Santa Claus when they described these postal workers, where it really was this idea of this special delivery to your home. So if this person's coming and dropping off mail and taking these letters, you know, it almost seems sort of magical as they taken from the home and delivered to where they needed to go. And part of that overhaul was not only home pickup and delivery, but also the notion of sending packages in the mail. Yeah, like people could you could send packages in the mail prior to, to 1913, but it was so expensive that it just was pretty unrealistic. You just wouldn't, that's not how, you just wouldn't be able to. The average person couldn't afford it. But yeah, when they passed the parcel post, it totally opened up the floodgates for gifts. It was two to three times as many gifts were being sent in 1913 than had been in 1912. And that number only increased. So given everything we've covered up to now, all these factors converging at roughly the same time, A five-week Christmas season, Christmas as a major gift-giving holiday, a popular image of Santa Claus, a mass media that can promote all of this far and wide, and a magical new postal service, it was inevitable that sooner or later children and Santa would start communicating through the mail. In fact, the earliest examples of correspondence between Santa and children is from several decades earlier, in the 19th century. But... Here's the odd part. Now our understanding is the kids write to Santa and uh, Santa then responds when they receive it. But it, in the early sort of the 1820s on, uh, if there were letters being written, it was generally parents writing them in the voice of Santa and just leaving these sort of wise counsels to their children, some advice like treat your brothers and sisters a little better and sort of giving them tips on how to behave for the year. But kids are resourceful. And like I said, the postal system itself was seeing rapid innovation and becoming more a part of everyday life, and especially Christmas. So it didn't take long for kids to figure out that if Santa could write to them, they could write to Santa. Although they weren't that resourceful because they didn't know Santa's address. Remember Katie? But when you write a letter to Santa Claus, if you put it on the envelope, what do you write? Where does it go? I write to Santa Claus 
at the North Pole. Yeah, so back in those days, they, yeah, kids would write to Santa and, and there would be no address. They, we didn't really even settle on the North Pole as Santa's designated address till, till early in the, the 20th century. Then it might be like Ice Street or Cloudville or, yeah, Behind the Moon or anywhere like that. And while that's cute and everything, it was creating a real problem for the post office. Christmas was already a heavy season for them, and there was no official policy on what to do with a letter written to an undeliverable address. So most local post offices just improvised. And every post office kind of did something different with it. They each they each had their own approach. Some of them would maybe give them... There, there was not like a designated postal policy at that point, uh, really. So they would maybe give them to the local newspapers, or uh, they would just trash them or return them to sender. They, the best case scenario, they might give it to, to the local editor of the paper who could then reprint it and talk about the, the charming letter this, this kid wrote. And a couple papers even would take it upon themselves to include the kid's address that people who maybe wanted to play Santa could, could send them something. And this was because a lot of those letters were written by the city's poor children, like this actual letter. My dear Santa, I'm seven year. I have two sister and brother. Mother said you will not call to our house as she has no money, but try to come. Marjorie is sending a letter to, she can't write good, but try to give me skates and a cowboy suit and Marjorie a doll. Edward Lennon. Many of them were asking for even more basic things, like food, clothes. One boy even wrote simply, please, Mr. Santa, will you send me a glass eye? Mine is broke. Sadly, most of these letters wound up caught in the red tape of the postal system or sent to the depressingly named dead letter office to eventually be destroyed. So in time, the post office had to just make the policy that, like with any other letter that goes to an undeliverable address, these Santa letters would just have to go to the dead letter office. They would maybe go there for for a period of time, but eventually they would just be destroyed. And before you knew it, two of the major factors behind creating modern Christmas— the post office and the media were embroiled in a public dispute. There started to be murmurings from the press and the public saying, wait, why are we doing this? Like, couldn't we somehow release these letters or find some solution? There's a, a Times editorial really taking the post office to task accusing them of being sort of heartless and uh, some, using some really uh, tough language. But this kind of criticism built up over a few years. So in 1907, the post office tried releasing the letters to anyone who wanted to answer them. Once again, newspapers would run some of them in hopes that some charitable reader would respond. Some local philanthropists would go directly to the post office to take a letter or two. But there were a couple of problems. First, the ban was lifted right at the end of November, so it was just right as the holiday season was starting, so there was not a lot of warning. So it was kind of thrown together very quickly, a pretty disorganized situation for the most part. And second, this was a really inefficient way to help truly needy families. Why rely on the myth of Santa Claus in newspapers when there were already established charities better able to help with this kind of thing? At least that was the argument of watchdog groups like the Charity Organization Society. And finally, there was really no vetting going on. This was a pretty easy system to abuse. There were already criticisms about now there's 
gifts going to children that aren't actually deserving of it. They don't actually need something. Uh, it's these kids are taking advantage of it, or uh, maybe it's you know someone writing a letter pretending to be a kid and they're getting these these gifts back. Particularly, criticism came from established charity organizations like the Charity Organization Society or the Children's Aid Society. These groups that have been around for decades and really put a high value on efficiency on making sure charity was going to deserve in cases. And so in 1908, the head of the Charity Organization Society persuaded the postmaster to reinstate the ban. The postmaster wrote it all off as a failed experiment, and all of those letters once again found themselves on a one-way trip to the dead letter office. But not for long, because it turns out that readers really liked seeing those letters published in the newspaper. Or, in other words, publishing the letters could help sell newspapers. And so the newspapers used their position to publicly call out the postmaster, calling him a Scrooge for obstructing Santa's work. Uh, so by 1911, there was a new postmaster general, and there was this growing pressure that, that increased again to release the Santa letters. And he decided to, to again, give it a shot. And, and uh, with the caveat that whoever did it needed to be approved by that local postmaster, which prior to it, it was a lot more lenient. This time it was uh, emphasized more that this this postmaster should, you know, vet the person that they, they give permission to or make sure that they've really, you know, seem like a credible candidate for this. And under the new policy, they'd release letters throughout all of December, not just the final days leading up to Christmas. So, problem solved, right? Not quite. It's all well and good if we're talking about a few dozen or even a few hundred letters. But what if it's thousands and thousands and thousands? Remember that scene in Miracle on 34th Street, where the court officers file into the courtroom hefting those huge canvas sacks of letters over their shoulders, and they dump them onto the judge's desk, creating an avalanche? That's pretty much what we're talking about. Newspapers would go back to running some of the letters like they did before, but there just weren't enough members of the public willing to come forward and help. The basic problem was still there, and it was only growing as the Christmas season wore on. For two years in New York, nobody came forward. It, it, the biggest city in the country didn't have a Santa Claus uh, to play the role. So all these children's letters, these little New Yorkers that had written, wouldn't have their pleas to Santa Claus answered. The post office was in a jam. They didn't want to have to send the letters back to the dead letter office, but what were they supposed to do with them? The letters were piling up, and the newspapers weren't letting anyone forget about it. Yeah, the, I believe it was the New York Sun that said, Santa Claus, a tardy saint. They were very disappointed that New Yorkers couldn't pull it together. And when, after all this complaining about the fact that Santa's letters were not being answered, nobody came forward to take it on. So that became, in 1911 and 1912, that was one of the sort of themes of Christmas coverage was that there are these letters, you know, not being answered despite this new change in the postal policy. Solving a problem like this was going to take ambition, a clever plan, and boundless Christmas spirit. And in 1913, help arrived from John Duval Gluck, a man who studied international law at Cambridge and Heidelberg, who is a special representative of newspapers and a famous tariff expert, and a member of the Secret Service, among many other impressive-sounding credentials. The only problem was, none of them were real. 
You've been listening to My Dear Santa, a true crime Christmas caper, a special six-part series from Christmas Past. It's produced in sunny San Mateo, California by yours truly, Brian Earle. We had music in this episode from Poddington Bear, Kai Engel, Kevin McLeod, Dave Depper, and Blue Dot Sessions. The entire series is available now under the regular podcast feed for Christmas Past, so look for Christmas Past wherever you get your podcasts. And all the other episodes for the season are coming soon, so make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out. And if you're feeling the Christmas spirit, why not help more people find the show by telling a friend about it or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts? Thank you to Katie and April, and thanks to Alex Killian. You heard him reading that child's letter to Santa. His dad is Todd Killian, host of the podcast Christmas Clatter. Thanks also to Alex Palmer and Greg Young. You can find out more about everyone involved in this series and discover some bonus content over at christmaspast.media. And you can join the conversation by searching for Christmas Past on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and by using the hashtag MyDearSanta. 